Seth Hecox, guitarist for Becoming the Archetype, has joined The Antidote. Seth, it's so good to have you here. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on, Dave. I appreciate it. I have to say that I never thought I'd have the chance to have an interview with Becoming the Archetype. Because, I mean, the band closed up a decade ago. Yeah. What was it that brought you guys back together? Well, uh, a lot of it was that when we went on our indefinite hiatus, uh, we had a new vocalist at the time, and he was no longer able to tour, and we just thought, well, you know, we don't want to get yet another vocalist, and, uh, and Jason wasn't available to tour either. At the time, the industry was kind of like, well, if you can't tour, then it's not worth it to invest the money into doing an album. Things have changed since then, not only with labels' expectations that bands tour, but also with uh, Jason's ability to write and record and do things that, that he wasn't able to do for some time. And so we started talking about this years and years ago. I mean, we started the conversations way back in like 2015. But uh, it just took a long time to figure out who was involved and how we were going to go about it and for everything to get traction. And then we started to get traction in early 2020. I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and the rest of the band is in sort of the Atlanta, Georgia area. And uh, I flew down to work on some songs that I had written and uh, start to progress on those with everybody. And it went well. But then the pandemic hit the next month. And so that delayed everything for a while. So it's sort of been one thing after another as far as delays and difficulties. But but once we kind of got our ducks in a row and all got on the same page, um, then things started to fall into place. So it was sort of just a, it's one of those things where for a band to come back from a long hiatus, you need you need a whole lot of things to work out, especially if you're going to do original members like we did. And uh and it just took a long time for all those stars to sort of line up correctly. Well, you know, with the band being out of the music scene so long, did you have any concern that your fan base might have moved on? No, not too much, because when we went on hiatus, I was the only original band member left, and I sort of stayed in contact and, you know, maintained our social media presence. So um, I was still interacting with people on Facebook, still tweeting things and interacting with people there, still uh, posting things on Instagram. I was still even doing reprints of various shirts, you know, like for to celebrate a 10th anniversary or a 15th anniversary of an album, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that there was substantial interest and that was, that was part of the conversation going into pulling everybody together for this album was, you know, the label and previous band members saying, well, what's the appetite out there for a new BTA album? And I would say, well, I can't say for sure, but I can tell you that, you know, just reprinting old t-shirts gets like several hundred people pretty uh, active and involved and willing to spend money. So I got to assume that a new album would be quite a few thousands of people that would be interested. And, and it's turned out that that's been a correct analysis. Well, you've already been talking about members and member changes over the years. It's been a four-piece, a five-piece, <laughs> and now Becoming the Archetype is a three-piece. Yeah. Has that changed anything? Well, um, you know, things did change with every album, and this, this one was no different. You know, we actually never did two albums with the same lineup. Every single album has at least one and usually two or more member changes. That's wild. I know, isn't that crazy? So yeah, we, we did the first album as a five-piece with three guitars, 
and then John and Sean, the lead guitarist and our, our sort of third guitarist, rhythm guitarist guy, both left the band. So then we had Alex join for the second album. Um, and then he left before we started the, the uh, third album. And Duck also left our drummer. And so we had a new drummer. And then John, our original lead guitarist, came back in the band for Dichotomy. And then going into Celestial Completion, John left the band again for the second time. So we added Daniel and Duck rejoined the band. So uh, we did Celestial Completion. And then after that, Duck left the band again. And Jason left the band because he couldn't tour anymore. Um, and so we added the lineup that became I Am. And so in this case, we sort of said, if we're going to do a new album and we're going to resurrect BTA, what incarnation of BTA are we summoning? So. We talked through things, Jason and I, and we felt like as close to the original lineup as we could do would make the most sense. So he and I and Duck started talking and uh, John was not interested in writing and recording an album at this juncture. So what ended up happening is technically the band is a three piece, but Nate Washburn was our producer and he's in the band My Epic. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. He, and he's great, you know, and he's not only a really good producer, but he functioned really as our lead guitarist, you know, as our, as our other guitarist in the band. So he, uh, he even did some of the writing and, uh, he did some of the leads. We did have guest solos on this album, one from Alec, our previous guitarist, and one from Daniel Gailey, also a previous guitarist who's now in Fit for a King. Um, so that was cool, but Nate, functionally, we, we basically wrote and recorded the album as a four piece. It just, that. Nate was the producer and not technically in the band at that time. Although it may be that he does in fact, uh, join the band. And if we play shows and stuff, he will probably play shows with us. <laughs> well, that is quite a story just all in itself. The evolution <laughs> of the band. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It, it made for a, for a unique, uh, situation every time we wanted to write and record and, and, that, you know, hand in hand with that, we recorded every album with a different producer at a different studio in a different city. So every time it was, you know, a new, um, a new environment and a new group of people working on the album. There certainly were different eras to the band. I mean, I got into the music of becoming the archetype with the physics of fire. Okay. And the track Epic of War, that blew me away. <laughs> I mean, I've played that song so many times. Yeah. That would have been an involved process to record that song. Yeah. But the thing is, I really can't imagine how difficult it would be to perform that live. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard almost regardless to perform a lot of our songs because for most of our career, we were writing things that were like the very most difficult things that we could play. <laughs> So uh, it was like in 2006 when we were writing that album and recording it, it came out in 2007, but we wrote and recorded in 2006. It's almost like uh, it was hard for us to play then. And now that I haven't played any of those for a long time, now it's like, man, I, I, it would take a while to remember how to play it and practice it so I could play it tight. And that's actually one thing that we are talking through now because we have an offer to play a festival. And I can't say which it is. Uh, they haven't confirmed all the details of the festival yet. But, you know, as we talk through like, OK, should we play this thing? And if so, what songs are we going to play? It's almost like overwhelming going like, OK, not only do we have to choose a set list, but then I have to learn all these songs again. 
<laughs> so, and I'm I have not played metal guitar in some years, other than writing and recording this album. So, it will definitely take some work to get into shape to like play things that are not disappointing for whoever is at this show. <laughs> because you are not as young as you used to be. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I wanted to ask you. I mean, becoming the archetype has to be one of the most intriguing band names. But I don't think a lot of people know what it's all about. So can you give an explanation? Sure, yeah. Um, Jason, our vocalist, came up with that name. Uh, we used to be called The Remnant, and we have a song on the new album called The Remnant. So that's sort of a clever wink and nod to that era of the band. Um mm -hmm. But when the label wanted to sign us, there was currently a punk band called The Remnants. And uh, they didn't want there to be any confusion about that. So they asked us if we'd be okay with changing the name. And so Jason came up with that name as sort of a, a, a pretty metal name. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, a lot of, at the time there were a lot of like band names with girls in the title, like uh, Don't Wake Aislinn or uh, mm -hmm. you know, all these sort of things. And so we, we thought, okay, let's do something that's sort of like, technical sounding that will sort of communicate right away that we're a metal band. And so um, most people don't even know what an archetype is or even sometimes how to pronounce it. So um, it's, it certainly has been a bit of an educational and conversation piece for us to, uh, <laughs> to talk through these things with people. But um, the idea is sort of that an archetype is something after which all subsequent things are modeled. So you might think of a prototype of a machine is sort of the initial version. An archetype is sort of like it's been perfected and this is how we're going to make all the rest of them or this is the, the goal to which all the rest of uh, these things are going to be formatted. And as Christians, we see Jesus as the archetype for humanity. So... Um, the word Christian means little Christ. So we are, uh, I guess, in a sense, little Christs being uh, transformed slowly into the archetype, which is Jesus Christ. And so we are becoming that through our lives. What a cool idea. Yeah, we thought so. I, I don't know that it's the catchiest band name, but... Uh, <laughs> but you do remember it, and that's the key thing. That does help. Yes, it is. It is memorable, mostly because people go, wait, how do you pronounce that word? <laughs> you know, that ties into something else, because years ago, Jason said, if you're not making a difference for the Lord, then we're just there making noise. So is making noise a negative? I mean, that might be exactly what some listeners are looking for. Yeah, and if people are looking for that, I think that's fine. I probably would not phrase it the same way that he did because it's hard to quantify or qualify something like uh, making a difference for the Lord. I, I think there's a value in art, even if it's instrumental and has nothing to do with uh, faith or anything. It's just, uh, it's just good music that's got value. So, and you know, Jason may say something differently now as well. I don't know, but um, yeah, I, I do value, uh, instrumental music and people who are just making noise or, or what they feel like is expressive, emotive uh, art. And I, I, uh, I hope that we're a little more than that to listeners, but even if we're just that, that's okay with me. But something that you did do that you could have got people really upset about, and maybe you did, was by doing a metal version of How Great Thou Art. <laughs> did anybody give you a hard time about that? 
Uh, no, actually, what's crazy is all of our fans and uh, sort of people that are in the scene really loved it. Um, it. It drew a lot of people in, and it might be the most beloved song in our catalog for our listeners. I have seen some YouTube videos of um, some bonehead professor somewhere. I don't even know what college it was at or what seminar it was at, but he used that song to juxtapose against you know, some milk toast hymn or worship song recording and how beautiful and glorifying to God that was. And then he played ours and he said, hey, do you see the difference? You know, this is, this is not uplifting, you know? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, well, uh, okay. I, you know, whatever, but he's not one of our fans. So like, and we never heard that from anyone. It just is something that someone else took and was, I guess, took offense at. So I, I don't really care. I don't think that guy was going to, uh, support becoming the archetype anyway. <laughs> Do things like that ever upset you as a band? At this point, no. I guess there might have been a time when they did, but I, I think for most of us, we sort of take it with a grain of salt. And we, especially in the age of the internet, anything you do, there's going to be examples of people that hate it or mock it or whatever, you know? So you just understand that's going to happen regardless. And, uh, Honestly, it kind of reassures me in some ways because the perspective that that guy is working from is not one that I find very helpful or useful anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if he doesn't like our music, it's kind of like, well, that's okay. I didn't expect you to, and no loss that you don't. Okay, here, why don't I spin that around a little bit? You personally are a Lutheran church pastor. Mm -hmm. How does the congregation respond to your music? Uh, so far, both the congregations I've served have been very supportive and, uh, and interested and open to what Becoming the Archetype does. I do think that a lot of them honestly just don't care too much, you know, so they haven't even bothered to look into it. But uh, the ones that have, have been interested and curious and, and have talked to me and asked questions about things, but no one that I've heard of has been upset or uh, or scandalized by it. So uh, that's to their credit that they're all seemingly cool with uh, with the style of music that I play. I'm just glad to hear there hasn't been any stoning. <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. I have probably caused more waves by things that I've said from the pulpit than I have by uh, being in a metal band. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, something about metal... Becoming the archetype sound has pulled in so many metal styles over the years. You've got death metal, progressive, metalcore, technical. I mean, you guys do it all. What's wrong with keeping it one constant style? Well, there's nothing wrong with keeping it one constant style. Some of our favorite bands kind of do that to some extent. We did a um, Spotify playlist of our influences while writing this album, and uh, plenty of the bands on there are just one consistent style uh, for all their songs. We just weren't particularly drawn to that. You could say it's because, you know, it's sort of like one of those jack of all trades, master of none, you know? So like... <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. Maybe we're just not uh, good enough to like actually perfect, you know, black metal or thrash metal or tech death metal or any of those other uh, things. But um, we just always felt like it was more fun to sort of move from a, um, you know, from like an epic 
orchestra thing and then juxtapose that with a black metal riff right after it and then uh and then maybe a breakdown or a piano interlude and then into a thrash riff that always just worked for all of us and that was kind of something that wasn't even debated too much between us we kind of all naturally gravitated towards that so i'm i'm thankful and appreciative of that for sure that's why i have no idea who your influences are but I know what it did remind me of is was X Toll. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Absolutely. because they're very experimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, X Toll and Opeth, both from from Norway. Would you know, actually, I think Opeth is from Sweden. But um, you know, those two bands would be easily at the very top of our influences through all the years. And um, actually, our second tour ever was in support of X Toll. And that was sort of a dream come true. I think it was their last U.S. tour, actually, way back in 2005. But uh, that album, Undeceived, sort of left an indelible mark on all of us, I think. You know where you guys really pushed the edge was on the Celestial Completion album. And you actually brought in Dennis Culp of Five Iron Frenzy to play sax on Cardiac Rebellion. Did you actually want to have the horns or were you just having fun? Uh, oh yeah, we did. We, you know, I predominantly was a huge ska fan in the the late '90s, early 2000s, and uh, that was my favorite music before I got into metal. And probably some of my favorite shows were ska shows. And uh, at the time, I was more of a fan of the Supertones and uh, Real Big Fish and stuff. But I became a fan of a Five Iron Frenzy more and more in my 20s, and that was one of Jason's favorite bands as well. He even has a Five Iron Frenzy themed tattoo. Um, we were looking to do something with a uh, ska sound at the end of one of our songs and, and Dennis agreed to play trombone on it, which was great. But, uh, yeah, that was celestial completion. We, we went into it and I kind of said, anything that you hear, you know, instrumentally, let's pursue it. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But it was sort of one of those, like, uh, you know, Brian Wilson is famous for this with the late Beach Boy stuff like Pet Sounds, you know, where they just mm-hmm. kind of went nuts and had all these uh, all these different things in there. And that's kind of the atmosphere or the energy and mindset that we were using for that album. And I love it. I think it worked out really well, but uh, it does mean that it's kind of harder to get in a groove with the album because it's constantly changing and morphing with, you know, with every passing minute, it seems, you know. Well, the band has morphed again because the latest from Becoming the Archetype is here. Mm-hmm. And you guys released Children of the Great Extinction, I guess, August 26th. Mm-hmm. So you did stretch yourself by making this a concept album. So maybe I should get you to give us the premise. Sure. Now, Becoming the Archetype has always been a riff-first band. So the way that we go about songwriting is that we write the riffs or the music, the guitar stuff and the, the keyboard stuff first. Uh, after that's written and the drums are sort of in place, then Jason starts looking at the screaming vocals, you know, where he's going to put them and what his patterns are going to be. And based on that, we might, uh, we might extend a section a little bit or shorten a section a little bit or move some things around. And then we'll add singing vocals and stuff. But because of the way that we do that, the lyrics get written usually fairly late in the process. So, you know, musically, it wasn't envisioned as a concept album, but uh, Jason decided to, as he was writing lyrics to, to make it a concept album that told a whole story. And the story is, 
a big sort of space epic. It's a story that uh, involves the sort of existential terror of people transversing space. But I think all of the themes that he includes lyrically resonate with us now. You know, even if we're not in space, we have plenty of our own existential terror. So he, he did a good job of sort of hitting on some of those very human themes that, even though it's in a different setting, sort of help reveal something about our own current situation. And, um, and so they, these people travel to another planet and they terraform the planet and then they lose connection uh, with the home planet. So, uh, so there has to be a group of rescuers sent and they find when they get there that uh, the surviving members of the original crew have sort of turned into monsters and only one person on the rescue crew makes it through and then uh, has to sort of make a sacrifice on behalf of those monsters to uh, give them some hope and redemption. Uh, so that's there. There are probably some connections that people will draw from that in terms of their faith persuasion. But even if you're not, I think the story should be compelling and and resonate some themes of terror as well as hope in our human condition. You know, before you started saying all that, you should have said, "Okay, this is a spoiler alert." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should we put a spoiler alert at the very beginning of that? <laughs> You know, something. I'm one of those really awful people who likes to mess with artists by taking song lyrics out of context. Oh, yeah? Like on the song that you referenced from your past, The Remnant. Part of the lyrics said, Separation, countless dimensions in between. Communication, severed ties with ancient mystery. No explanation. Only the silence of the unforgiving void. Dissociation. Couldn't that actually also describe how the band was silent these last 10 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a bad way to understand it. Yeah, there certainly was uh, probably a disconnection that some people felt from the band uh, that had followed us all the way through and kind of felt like, man, I, I really wish that they were still doing stuff or that I could, could hang out with them or connect with them, and, and it just wasn't possible. So, yeah, that's one way to look at it. How about you personally as a musician? Because Jason was obviously busy with death therapy. What about you? Uh, as a musician, so uh, Becoming the Archetype did our last tour. It ended August of 2013. So there, there is 10 years between albums being released, but there's really only about uh, nine years or a little less than nine years from the last show that we did to the, you know, the newest music being released. But after that BTA tour... I only did one other rock thing. I toured with Five Iron Frenzy. Their guitarist, Micah, could not do the tour, so he called me and asked me to fill in for him. So um, that was really fun to, um, to play guitar in his stead and, uh, and hear ska every night. That was a lot of fun. Other than that, all I've been doing is basically church music and sort of joking parody songs and you know doing cover songs for like church events and stuff like that. But uh, other than that, I haven't done very much musically until I started writing this album. So listen, getting back to the album, are people going to get what you're going for on Children of the Great Extinction? I mean, you're pushing them to listen to an entire album in order. And I mean, really, today's world, everybody just listens to singles. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, that was uh, one of my hesitancies 
when Jason sort of decided to, to make it one overarching story is I thought, well, it'd be great if we could still do this in a way where each song can sort of make sense on its own, even if you're not listening to the whole story. And, and for the most part, I think he did a, a good job at that. It probably helps us that primarily the vocals on the album are screaming. And so the, the individual words tend to become less central to the song. So that probably gives us a little bit of leeway. But um, I think that our hardcore fans or our longtime listeners have been completely in love with what we've done. I don't know yet how it's going to go over with other people. I think probably first and foremost, what they're going to like or dislike is the sound of the of the music, you know, the recording quality, the production value, the riffs, you know, all of that stuff. And if they like that, then they might dive in deeper and, and sort of connect with the lyrics. But because the lyrics tend to, in a metal band, be one of the last things that I think listeners really key in on, you know, as far as whether they're going to listen to the music or not, uh, I think we're in, in a little bit of luck there. You know, if we were a, a pop band or a country band, we'd be running a much higher risk doing uh, a lyrical concept like this. All I've got to say is that I love the album. I want to pull in another song. The Calling says, Close your eyes and follow the light. Let reality bend itself around you. By conviction and not by sight, answer the call from deep within you. Obviously, you can apply that today. This isn't just for that future world that you created for the album. Yeah, so that song is uh musically one of my favorite and lyrically it probably is my favorite because um those things work together the music and the lyrics on that song really well and and powerfully especially in my context so you referenced earlier that i'm a lutheran pastor and to be ordained our understanding in the lutheran tradition is that you uh, are receiving a call and so we call it the call process whenever a pastor is uh, say, interviewing with a congregation, and then the congregation votes to give them a call or not. So it is, is our calling to be a pastor. Those lines that you quoted earlier, as well as the lines at the very end, you know, open the door and step inside, all you've got to do now is survive, is very fitting for, <laughs> for uh, you know, entering into the life and work of a pastor. So I have found that quite meaningful in terms of the uh, in terms of the lyrical content of that song, and and uh, I do think it probably has to do with uh, with a lot of people's situation. That if you trust only your sight or your physical senses, you're going to end up in some pretty bad places sometimes. So you have to have some conviction that guides you one way or another, even even if it's not faith related. Something that's deep within you that can sort of guide you a little bit and get you through the the depressing times or the rough times, you know? Yes, absolutely. Well, something I haven't asked you about, but I'm wanting to know is, what's the future of Becoming the Archetype? Like, is the band actually back to stay? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <laughs> um, we're taking this sort of one step at a time. You know, throughout all those conversations we had, during the writing process, we we considered, gosh, we considered so many things. We considered doing stuff with Daniel, but he was busy. So we thought maybe we should just do a single. 
and we considered trying to convince John to do stuff, but he was not that interested. So we thought maybe we should do an EP and maybe he just contributes a little bit. Um, and uh, so we, we, we didn't really decide on the full length album thing until, until we really had quite a lot written and had several conversations. Once we did that, we were considering, okay, this took so long, you know, is this something that we ever would, would want to try again? And, you know, we decided we're definitely not going to be able to tour because we're all, we're all working and we're all dads and we live in different areas of the country. Some of us don't even have gear, you know, to, to play. So we'd have to spend thousands of dollars on gear uh, to, to tour. So that's out of the question. But do we even want to try to play like one show, like a festival? And so there was debate about that. So I think where we're at right now is that um, we are planning to play a festival uh, within the next year. And then we might play a couple other, you know, one-off festivals as well. And um, if the album is received really well and the festivals go great and we don't strangle each other before it's done, um, <laughs> you know, if, you know, God willing and the creek don't rise, we, we might work on another album at some point. But we certainly haven't begun yet. And there is uh, certainly no guarantee that that'll happen. It's, it's just it's hard to answer the question very confidently yet. I guess the, the answer is we'll wait and see. Well, Seth, I want to say thanks for making this album because I've been waiting way too long for a new one. And thanks for coming for a talk with The Antidote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and I hope that this conversation is invigorating or enlightening for some of the people who are listening.